Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Scott Simmons Podcast. Today, we are going to actually be talking about a topic that um, you, our listening audience, has requested, and we're going to kind of reveal that in a little bit. But before I would we do that, I would like to welcome our co-host, Micah Current. Micah, how are you doing today? Glad the Super Bowl's over. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of, as a Steelers fan... I'd rather, I think I would rather your Cleveland Browns win the Super Bowl <laughs> than the Chiefs again. So, um, I, I felt like the Super Bowl this year was probably the most exciting. Okay. I mean, just because, I mean, it was close. The only thing I had an issue with is I felt the halftime show, even though I like Usher and I thought he did a good job, I just felt like compared to other halftime shows in the past, this was very underwhelming as far as the spectacle i guess you would say you know what i mean yeah. well it's like yeah i don't know I, <laughs> I i was just tired of it but like it had nothing to do with the teams in it it had nothing to do with the halftime show but like i don't know like i think it was last year that they added a, a an extra week onto the football season the nfl season so they play one more game than what they normally do um i think before it was 16 weeks and now it's 17, 17 or something yeah. like that i don't remember um but like it just seems like the season took forever and I don't know if it's cause it was later in February that they're playing the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, it's like the second week, but like sometimes the Super Bowl's in January, sometimes the Super Bowl's in February um, and, you know, college football wrapped up and I, I don't know, man, like I just got tired of, I think I'm tired of it and ready for, you know, warmer weather and <laughs> I don't know, baseball. I don't, <laughs> something, something different. So, yeah. All right. Yes. Good. So um, as we dive into, before we dive into our topic, story's gone wild. Um, Any wild stories that you have to share with us, Micah? Yeah, it actually involves you. Oh, no. What did I do? Plot twist. Oh. (laughs) I forget to respond to one of your text messages. That's usually kind of what the story's gone wild is. Uh. No, for the listeners, he does forget. Like I, I just wonder. I seldomly wonder if Scott just, you know, just killed over because <laughs> it'll be days so, yeah, <laughs> until and, I hear from him. And it also depends on the week. Like last week was a busy week. I was barely yeah. in my office last week, so I was probably bad at responding to anything. <laughs> Even like he called me and left the message, I probably would have heard the message. Go, oh, I need to call you back and. Never did. <laughs> I don't know if that's just something that comes with age, but like, you know, the older you get, like I remember being in my twenties and I was like, man, I was texting people all day long and I would have like 30 text messages and I'd be really good at responding. And now I like leave my text messages and read for days and I'm like, Oh, I need to text my brother back or, well, Oh, it, I need to. <laughs> Go ahead. It could be, but I mean, I've, I've actually this week, I text a buddy of mine who, you know, we grew up in the same church and, and he's usually notorious for not getting back to me. And then he'll always text me like, oh, I'll get back to you. I'm so sorry for I'm being such a bad friend right now. I'm like, it's okay. I understand because he's, you know, he's busy. He's a pastor. And so, but he's also older too. But then I have another guy I check in um, monthly and he's younger than I am. And same thing. Very rare that he responds back to my text messages or return my calls. (laughs) So I think it may not have to do necessarily with age. I think it just has to do with just, um, not only being busy with the church, but even like with the younger pastor that I, I'm in contact with, you know, he has a young daughter. So it's kind of like I'm doing ministry work. My wife works. And I'm also kind of taking care of my child. So and I get that. I understand that very well. Yeah. So my story, um, you know, we you and I, it's not like we like scour the Internet for topics to talk about, but like you would you had mentioned that the church of God was having a town hall with Jim Lyon last week. Yeah. <laughs> and you asked me, you asked me if I was going to watch it and, you know, just figured that like, Hey, we would just both watch it and we kind of review it and then talk about it on, on. And so like last week you had texted me, that was like one of the, before you texted me yesterday to see, to tell me what we're going to talk about today. But you texted me early last week and was like, Hey, are you going to watch the town hall? And I'm like, sure. When it like Thursday. And I was like, all right, so it got to, you know, got to be Thursday and I'm like I'm on Facebook and I'm on the Church of God site and it's like 
town hall Thursday. And I'm like, why is this not working? Like, there's nobody there. There's no live stream. I looked on their YouTube page, I looked on their website. And I'm like, I texted Scott. And I'm like, Scott, you goof. It's the it's the following Thursday. <laughs> and I felt like a I felt like an idiot because I'm sitting there like, where where's Jim Lyon? Where is this town hall? on Facebook live and um apparently Scott and I can't read um graphics well, the problem because... is I kept well I kept getting it kept getting popped up and I think sometimes it's not necessarily the graphic it's sometimes maybe even just the blurb where it's like you don't want to miss the town hall on Thursday and I'm thinking oh my gosh it's this Thursday and it's like well no it's not and I don't know and again I again I that was my son's field trip so I was a chaperone so it's like I can't watch it I have to like chaperone kids so it was well it uh, was just funny because i was like where 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 is the where's the where's the live stream and so then i finally like clicked on the graphic and it said february the 14th which is this thursday hmm. so anyway that was my story's gone wild I'm not trying to throw you under the bus my friend no. i just thought it was funny so, that you. <laughs> the story's got, so, so you know how like um you know how like if you're I don't know. I've only and I and I don't want to be a I don't want to say stereotypes, but I know that the few times I have spoken at like a predominantly African American church, when I preach, there's always I'm always getting responses back. You know, like the amens or oh man, you're preaching now, woo! Like you know, I'm getting like like those feedback. It's like oh man, you know, the few times I preached at an African American church, I loved it. So anyway. Tuesday, there is a pastor's gathering at the Grove City United Methodist Church, and um, my pastor signed me up and also our uh, our um, outreach minister to go to this event. So I went there, and you know what? It was kind of reminded me of GA without all the business meetings. It was basically a simple time of worship and connection and just kind of doing whatever. So this is all the West Ohio Conference. So we're sitting there and we were talking about, we had a speaker who was talking about some of the um, trends that you're seeing with like Gen Z and, and, and the church and everything else. And kind of this idea of, um, you know, the idea of we have to be, um, we don't have to be innovators because God's the innovator, but we kind of have to be open to how God is innovating to be able to connect with people who really don't see church as a priority anymore. So it was really so it was really good topic and this person was like a professor at Princeton so it was pretty cool but I remember but the one thing is they had some people kind of speak or share at their table and there's this older pastor that walks up there and he's talking about how he's a boomer. Oh, it's goodness. like okay. Okay. So you know so immediately I'm thinking oh no what's this going to be about? And then this dude is like, you know, the problem is, is I'm a boomer, but I don't even know how to talk to my own people. I don't know how to talk to these other boomers that they need to get their act together because they are killing the next generation with all their, you know, they say that the young people are the future of the church, but then they want to talk about how much money they've invested in a church and how they don't want to be able to do anything or share space or do whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, and I'm like verbally going, ooh. Ooh, like he, this guy was like doing like uppercuts and right hooks to the boomer generation as a boomer. And I was enjoying the show. It was fantastic. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, dude, that's my new best friend. <laughs> like, and then again, I'm, I mean, for those of you who are boomers who listen, like, I'm not saying all boomers are like that, but there is a, there has been a, uh, what you would call, like almost a stereotype of, church boomers who say oh we need young people in the church we need we you know young people are the future of the church we want all this stuff but then they say that but then their actions always kind of do the opposite of engaging with younger families or younger people to become participants in church life i mean i've got so much that i could say about that but like i'm not going to it's, it's just uh, something that i've realized over the last couple of years especially like there's so much judgment from that generation and it's like 
you you wonder why people aren't coming to church. You wonder why people don't feel welcome. You wonder why there's this sense of, you know, territorialness, I guess if that's a word, uh, people marking their territory. Um, it's just, it's really sad is what it is. Um, and it's great example of this. And I'm not, you know, belittling or judging or anything, but last night, um, our contractor was here wrapping up the, the project at our house. And I kind of was watching the Super Bowl and I kind of wasn't, and I was just trying to run around getting stuff cleaned up after he had left. Um, and so this, the halftime show was on and I didn't really watch much of it, but like, that was me growing up in high school. That was my, you know, era of music. And like, so Usher was super popular when I was in oh, high yeah. school. Right. But like, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this with our topic. Uh, but like, um, I'm scrolling through Facebook and I see a lot of these older folks that are, you know, friends of mine, pastors, uh, older folks that I know or acquaintances with my grandparents or my parents, like they're like turning the Super Bowl off and like taking pictures of it on their Facebook, like pictures of like their TV being turned off because they didn't, they, they thought it was just, it was ridiculous that Usher would be on TV and that he was dancing the way that he was and singing the songs the way he was. And it was like, you know, it, it's not like a Christian genre of music, but like he wasn't hurting nothing. Yeah. Right. I like, feel like, I feel like Usher probably the tamest, I feel like Usher was probably more tame than like Rihanna last year. Or, you know, I, Janet I, Jackson. Or or Janet Jackson and Justin <laughs> Timberlake. I mean, yeah, let's... Or even, like, you know, and even Lady Gaga, when she did, I thought she did a great job, but I didn't think it was that outrageous. But even, I felt like Usher was tamed to that, and I didn't think Lady Gaga had a very, you know, a very overtly sexual or conflicting message that she was singing in her songs, you know? So, it, it is. It's one of the... Yeah. And that's just one example of like this whole yeah. judgment thing. And it's like, um, you know, another one, you know, we talked about uh, 2024 being an election year a couple of weeks ago um, in politics in the church. But it's like, believe it or not, Scott, there are people that believe things that are different than we do. Christians, yeah. not Christians, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, gay, straight, black, white, like people are different. Like, and that's, and the fact of the matter is, whether we agree with it or not, we're all different, but we're all children of God. Like, we just, I think that that generation, do you consider our parents boomers or is it our grandparents? So I once, one time made the mistake of calling my dad a boomer one time. And he's like, I'm not a boomer. Well, technically he is, but it's interesting because it's almost like when people say I'm a millennial and I go, no, I'm not. But because yeah. I'm an el technically I'm an elder millennial, but the way people describe millennials, someone who was born in like 1982 may have a different lookout than someone who was born in 1990. What you know, I was if, getting at, like cause, again, because well, nine eleven. I mean, if you look at nine eleven, kind of being that kind of like that gap bridge, that, that or almost like that that traumatic event in in, our, in the millennial generation and even Gen Z as well. I was already graduated high school when that happened. Yeah. Someone who was born in like the nineties, they're still, they're probably like in middle school right now when that happened. So the way you are and your developmental and a big tragedy, a national tragedy like that happens, it's going to affect you differently. So sometimes it's like, you know, there's certain things where I kind of identify more with gen X than I do with millennials. But then there's other things that I do like the technology side, like, yeah, like, I picked up technology real quick. I had all those technologies. So if that makes me a millennial, then I'm a millennial. But I'm just, like I think I'm speaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Go I'm ahead. speaking like, like our parents and our grandparents, like in the, like collectively, um, as, as I'm, as I'm talking about, um, some of this judgment and some of this, um, I don't want to call it rhetoric, but like, this this idea or a set of ideas that like if you're not 
agreeing with the way that we do things or the way that we say things or the way that we believe things, you know, in respect to politics or the way the church should be, then we're just going to write you off and turn you off. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's not like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for things like social media and, you know, zoom and the ability to podcast and have these conversations like we do every week. But like, you know, we send each other videos all the time and some of them are funny and some of them are like outlandish as far as people in churches and the way they do things. And like, you know, like I would never do those things. And, and I'm not saying, Hey, I'm not being an advocate for that, but there yeah. are like, there are some videos that we send each other where people have valid points. Like we talked about giving and last week's episode, we talked about tithing. I sent you a video this morning about a guy who is a theologian and a scholar, and he talks about how he gave to a church for 20 years. And then he felt like the Lord was releasing him from that because he said it wasn't biblical. It wasn't biblically accurate to tithe. And he felt like it was a scam mm. because it's just to improve the church and to pay salaries of people and to, you know, make a church go into debt and it's just like this vicious cycle um there are several instances where you know i'm seeing these videos where there's this trauma that comes from churches and then they wonder why but then there's this judgment and this automatic writing off of other generations or future generations beyond the boomers and the people that are our parents and then they wonder why their churches are empty on Sundays and they wonder why they can't grow. And before you and I hit record, you're talking about your church, you know, going through some sort of consulting process, which I think mm -hmm. is great because you guys honestly want to assess where you are, what you can do better and how you're going to get better to, to, to grow, to, to see things in a different lens. But, you know, when we had Jeanette on a couple of weeks ago, she talked about recommendations, right? Like people can come in and I think it's great when people come in, like consulting companies and, and, and whatnot. And it's like they see what we don't see because we, we're going, you know, you and I are pastoring and we're like in the churches, in the trenches every single week. Whereas a consultant comes in and they've never been there before and they're seeing it with fresh eyes, my wife likes to say, fresh eyes. And um, they can offer insight and recommendations based on what they're seeing. And so, like, I think it's great when when churches go through that. But, like, if you've got generations that are automatically going to write that off, then why waste the time to do it? Because the church has already made up its mind. Sorry. Rant over. I was yeah. just, I I yeah. went on a huge rant because I, I just feel, I just feel compelled to, to share that because it's like, why, why? <laughs> just tell, tell me, Scott, why is it the way it is? I don't know. And see, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if I think about like my parents, like I think my parents would fit in that boomer category or kind of like the tail end of, of the boomers, you know, they're kind of like the, the baby, I guess if you have elder boomers, then you kind of have like your, your young boomers, they would be kind of at the tail end of that, of that, um of that group. And, you know, there's times where my dad can say some things or make some comments and I'm like, eh, but there's also times where if I kind of, speak up and say hey it's not always like that i think you're getting wrong information and let me tell you what i've learned and kind of the things that i've heard from you know people i've talked to and some of the things i've read and i when i have those conversations you know he is to the point where he will listen he's not like oh well, you don't know what you're talking about like he's very good and we talk about things and we kind of even sometimes there may be certain approaches that we may disagree with but we may also but we do agree with kind of each other's point of view and kind of where we're coming from and kind of understand the other person's point of view and especially you know and i think the big thing like when if me and my dad ever get into a conflict with politics usually it always ends up with my dad kind of being more of well if we look at it from a policy perspective this isn't bad this actually does good, and I can see how it does good for not only the his company, like if it's something that's like a business thing, how well this is good for his company and how he can use these breaks to kind of help filter that down to those who are working 
at his company, the, you know, the blue collar workers and how they can get more and how they can benefit more from this. Right. Um, but then I can also go back and say, well, okay, I understand the policy. I could see how, how you approach business is different than how an Elon Musk will approach business. You definitely might do that. Someone else may not. They may say, oh, here's this incentive. Now I'm going to get richer. I'm now making a million dollars. I'm now making $5 million. Or, you know, you may like this president because he has great policies and that's fine. I agree with that. But at the same time, I have very questions about this person's character. Yeah. Even though they have great policies, are they going to live it out or are they just telling what the audience wants to hear to get to get votes? Yeah. And I become very skeptical of sometimes that because if I'm seeing someone's character, then it doesn't matter what they say. I'm going to be I'm going to have like a very cynical eye and going, OK, well, this isn't going to fly. But yeah, so I just so again, that's kind of my story's gone wild. I just thought it was interesting that someone from that generation was saying, hey, my generation, you, you need to wise up here because you don't realize it. But we're really kind of the main people on why our churches are so small, because we've screwed up, you know. I hijacked your story's gone wild. <laughs> I know. So now let's get to our, so now today we're going to get to our um, main topic. And actually, this was actually um, given to us through an email. And um, basically they said that, you know, a good topic would be for, um, you know, would be to see how uh, if pastors should be doing counseling or therapy within their churches uh they said that might make a good um that may make a good podcast episode and i agree because someone who has went got their masters of divinity in pastoral counseling uh this is something that i'm very passionate about and i'm also not passionate about seeing people healed and doing good counseling within the church but also knowing my limitations and also seeing how it has been abused and actually not only was this suggested, but they kind of share a story how this person was connected to a church uh, through a counseling program and was seeing the senior pastor regularly for counseling, um, was attending church and kind of had a relationship not only with the pastor, but also with the pastor's daughters who kind of referred to this woman as, you know, a sister. I mean, at this time she was young and uh, she tells the story about how you know, looking back, she uh, she kind of saw how he kind of exploded some of her vulnerabilities in the counseling room, was kind of doing like a deep attachment or grooming with her. And then um, during a uh, Sunday school class or some type of class, uh, she was there and the pastor said they had a brief conversation with a couple out of church who knew of somebody that you know, might be interested in, you know, going on a date with her, you know, because she's single. And the pastor made the comment, if I wasn't married, I would date you. Which she uh, talks about how she was shocked, felt very disoriented. And then eventually he went back to his office and then he came back and asked her to come back to his office and basically had a brief conversation with her and said, hey, you shouldn't tell anybody that I said that to you and then kind of closed out that meeting in prayer and um, and kind of felt like that this pastor had like deep control of this woman uh, emotionally in his office as he as she was seeing him for counseling um, actually got to the point that he uh, um, after he left that church, he actually pastored three more churches before the credentialing um before somebody sent an official complaint to the Church of God, and again, this is happening in the Church of God church, and basically was told that he needed to surrender his credentials or they were going to take them from him. And eventually he did. So, you know, he passed her three more years kind of doing the same thing, doing some of these things. And luckily, you know, only gave a snapshot, but that's kind of where they kind of ended, like, you know, and kind of, the way this person closed out this email says, I hope the Church of God continues to improve with education, prevention, and proper care of survivors. I want all children real protected from any type of predator, of course, as well. I wish more churches as places like uh, Grace, which is like netgrace.org, to evaluate their church environment. And I checked out the website. It's actually an organization that not only 
can like a like an independent organization that can kind of look at church culture to see if it's a toxic culture, especially that kind of opens response to abuse or trauma and kind of, or they even have like different like um, services that you can uh, get online training to how to make your churches more safe from this type of uh, predatorial behavior. So I thought, again, I got that email and I was just shocked by I think it's shocked when someone tells about their experience and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Uh, but, you know, when we think about things like the Southern Baptists and some of these other uh, churches and denominations that, you know, this is something that kind of happens. And sometimes local churches and even sometimes the national churches are not very good at addressing it or kind of confronting it head on or even addressing that they do have an issue. So thanks to our listener who sent that to us and thank you for the topic. And we're going to discuss that. So Micah, um, should pastors be counselors to their congregation? I think yes and no. Okay. Um, and you said your master's was in pastoral counseling, but it was divinity divinity. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any sort of licensure that went along with your counseling? So here's how, so when I went to, so I got my MDiv at Ashland uh, seminary Okay. and um, they changed it. They changed the program, but originally the program they had was a two year um, cohort and you had your pastoral counselors and your clinical counselors all together in the same room. So as I'm sitting here, I am learning things about how to do a diagnosis, how to read psychological testing, and even give psychological testing. I mean, so I'm learning a lot of clinical things. However, because I was a pastoral counselor, by the state of Ohio, I'm not allowed to do a diagnosis. I'm not allowed to do psychological testing. I'm not allowed to write prescriptions for psychological, um, psychotic medication, you know, and I'm not allowed to charge money for my services. Only people who are licensed, uh, clinical counselors can do all those things. I cannot. So a lot of times when I was doing counseling, or people wanted to see me for counseling, whether it was someone off the streets or if it was um, or if it was a parishioner, I'd let them know ahead of time. You know, I am a public I'm a public a servant, which means that if you say anything that can cause harm to anybody else or yourself, I have to report it to the authorities. Um, I also told them that I am not a licensed clinical counselor. I am a pastoral counselor, which means. Um, I will listen to you. I will counsel you. However, if there is something that I believe is outside of my realm or expertise, or if I think you need a lot more help than what I'm able to give, I am going to refer you out. I do not take payment. And um, and I will not diagnose you. Like I may, I may listen to you and I may in my head, I may do a diagnosis just to kind of help me understand like, okay, just based on what I've learned and kind of the self-diagnosis I just kind of did of you for my own personal thing, it does seem like you may possibly have this type of disorder, which means I might have, I'm going to have to refer you out. Yeah. Or, well, was... I, or I would refer you out to seek for the counseling side, but then if you still want spiritual counseling, I'm still available and I will just work on the spiritual. Yeah. Um, that, I guess that was my first question. Because um, a lot of times, like you said, you have to, you know, there's a lot of parameters around counseling, right? Like if there's any sort of like self-harm or harm to others, you have to report it to the police. Like we have to do that in higher ed. Like if there's any sort of like, you know, self-harm or, or, or otherwise, like we have to report that to... Uh, the police and to the university and, you know, there's this whole thing. Um, the reason I asked about license, you know, licensure is that like, so I, I have been open about therapy. I've been in therapy for almost two years, but my counselor, my therapist is 
licensed. I pay her. I see her once a month. Um, there's a set rate. There's a set time. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever I tell her stays with us, right? And like, you know, we unpack whatever's going on in my life at the time. And um, I think it's a great exercise. Um, I... I would be hesitant to counsel those of the church that I pastor because of the situation that you just presented. Mm. And what I mean by that is that like, let's just say that you're counseling folks within your congregation, you know, it's really hard to be subjective when that person walks through the door and you are the pastor and you're getting ready to get up and, and preach the word of God and, and share. And, um, that person walks into the room and you're like, well, that person's having an affair right now, or that person's hooked on drugs or that it's like, it's really hard for you to be subjective in, in the moment. And it's, not, and I mean that like in purely in respect to the conversation of like, I'm not saying, hey, you're going to call that person out like this person did in the email that you you read, Scott. But like, how are you supposed to stay subjective in your own heart and mind, knowing that that stuff's going on in the back of your mind while you're supposed to be able, you know, supposed to be preaching and teaching and and leading um, a church? And I just think that would be incredibly difficult. Now, if it were, if it were, you know, some, you know somebody in the community, if that was somebody from another church, like if you have a friend who's a pastor of another church and they referred folks to you, they can come to you and like, there's no attachment there. I'm, and, and this is like purely my, I, Scott, I know that you've counseled people within your churches that you've pastored. Um, but that's purely from my experience. Like, I don't know that I could in clear conscience, uh, have those conversations and, lead a church effectively. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you bring up very good points because I mean, and I would even say, I think it's difficult for both, whether it's a person inside the church and outside the church. And here's why, because again, I, I agree with you hundred percent. Like when you're counseling someone who is a part of your congregation and let's say you are, you know, that they have, issues or whatever that issue or that vice may be and so you're up there preaching and sometimes you have to go like okay now one thing you want to make sure that when you're preaching that it's being guided by god and by how the holy spirit's leading you at the same time you almost have to you almost kind of almost double check yourself in some ways because let's say if i'm going to be preaching on um you know if i'm going to be preaching on like um the dangers of drug addictions or just addictions in general, right? And I know that I'm seeing somebody in the congregation for counseling session that has an addiction. Okay, well, even if I don't use like a illustration or even if I use, even if I got, even if I use that person's story and just change the names or do whatever, that person's probably going to feel hurt or going to feel attacked. Even if I don't use an illustration, if I just even speak on the topic in general, that person may think, oh, he's only doing that sermon because he knows about my addiction. So there's almost kind of like this thing where you go, okay, there's there's an issue, there's a problem, right? Um, the other, the thing with the having outside people coming in to see counseling is eventually they build a relationship with their counselor, which is kind of the whole counselor-client you know, relationship and privilege. And um, when that happens, sometimes, you know, that person may want to be a member of your church. And then, of course, oh, how are you? And then, you know, when you have church people asking, oh, how do you know what brings you here? It's like, oh, because I've been seeing Pastor Scott for counseling for five years. Then it's like, oh, okay. And then people are going, oh, well, then why are they seeing counseling? Like, what's going on? Because, again, even though we're in the year 2024, mental health is still kind of a, a taboo topic, which it shouldn't be. But there's still people who don't get help for a variety of reasons. 
uh, because they are afraid of whatever judgment or it shows weakness or whatever that may be. So, and I mean, you know, there's a couple of times when I've counseled people in the community, um, you know, there's a couple things where you go, oh, like, um, where, you know, you have to also kind of be careful with that as well, because especially if they're seeing you after hours when, especially if you're, again, I was a small small church pastor, so it's not like I had a secretary. It's not like I had other people around. So when someone from off the streets is coming to see me, they're seeing me when there's no one else in the building. So a lot of times when that happens, I usually would tell Laura, I'd say, hey, from this time to this time, I'm meeting with this person. And, um, you know, I'm meeting with a client or I may say I'm meeting with this particular client and I may say their name. And then I'm done. Our session is done at this time. And then I'll be home at this time. So then that way I'm kind of creating a timeline or a record. So in case if there's any false accusations, at least there was a timeline. At least there's a timeline of people saying, okay, here's what's going on. And sometimes, you know, I'd make sure I had my, a window in my door. So sometimes if someone was coming in while I was having a session, they would see I was having a session. I just would wave at them and I'd just say, oh, it's one of my elders walking through cleaning or the custodians coming. And I would just let them know who's coming here and kind of let them know ahead of time. And so they knew that there was someone going to be in the space. So then that and I think in that way, it, it kind of made them feel safe. And it means more for protection for me as well in case of things turn. So it's protection for me and for the client as well, that there's going going to be around. So if anything weird happened, um, there at least would be somebody who could give an account. Um, as far as the topic, should pastors counsel? I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of torn with that because even now, I don't know if I would ever do counseling with parishioners in the church or even do it in the community anymore, to be quite honest. Why is uh, that? Uh, well, for the, for, for the main reason that I got my master's of divinity in 2000 and I was, I got it in 2012. And again, like when you are a counselor, when you are a licensed counselor, you always have to go and get a continuing education credits. So yeah. you always have to go to keep your license. It's like education. If you're a public school teacher, yeah. you have to continue on. Even if you have a master's degree, you have to continue on with, you know, so many hours every year of continuing ed. Now, I mean, I still get, I mean, I still get emails from like psychology today and I still get like letters from the ACA or even sometimes the, um, the, uh, you know, there's, there's even like a Christian counselor association. I think it was like the CCAA. And, you know, even though I kind of tried to keep up to date with some of the things that, you know, are happening, I'm so far removed. I mean, when I went to school, it was the DSM-4. We have the DSM-5. So for me, I feel like if I was to counsel somebody, I may not necessarily know what was current, especially or the changes that were made. Yeah. And, and, so, and that may not be bad because, you know, anxiety – you know, an anxiety disorder is an anxiety disorder. There's not much that shifts with that between one DSM to another. But I know like things like, um, like they just added the, like, I know they had um, bulimia nervosa, nervosa and anorexia nervosa, which are kind of a psychological thing for eating disorders. Um, they added more now. So there's a couple more things that added kind of added to the eating disorder. So there's something there. I think video game addiction at one time was going to be added to uh, the DSM. I don't think it was. I might have that. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> Do you have even... that, Scott? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. Um, but I think one of the interesting things, too, is I think like with um, the LGBT community, DSM-2, um, that was a psychological disorder and now it's i think it's been written out by the time i know they had like it was they called it a social factor in the dsm-4 if i remember right um but then you go to the dsm-5 i don't even think it's in the dsm-5 
at all. And again, I haven't looked at the DSM-5, so I could be wrong with that. So, you know, when you think about that, how much the different techniques and tools and how to really impact people um, to meet their um, emotional and psychological well-being, like, for me, I have a hard time now being able to say, yeah, I, I can counsel you from a psychological perspective because I've been out of it for so long and I haven't been really keeping up to date or track or, or, you know, I guess my pseudo um, CE credits because I'm just doing it myself. Because again, I'm a pastoral counselor. I don't need to take CE credits because I don't have a license that needs to keep up to date. And so for me, I think over time, I may not be the best person to see. Like, I mean, if someone wants to see me and they want to talk to me about counseling stuff, yeah, I'll have them. But then after that thing, I might say, you know, I may, you know, I know somebody who's a very good counselor. There's a great Christian counseling organization here where they're all licensed counselors. I can refer you to them and just kind of not do it. Uh, because I think in some ways it's going to help build the relationship better. So I'm not knowing all the intricate details of someone's um, why they're seeing me for counseling. And I think it kind of helps keep that pastor-parishioner relationship in a good way. So you're not trying to bounce the role between pastor and parishioner and counselor and client. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And it covers you, right? Like, it's well, just... and even Well, and even that, like when I was doing counseling, I still had to get liability insurance for my counseling. Yeah. So if I was going to counsel someone, I would have to get liability insurance because here's the thing. If I didn't have that and something was to go wrong and I did something wrong, or if I was accused of doing something wrong, who's taking the brunt of that lawsuit? Yeah. If I'm doing it in the church, the church is going to be sued. So a lot of times I would always, and I know before when I mentioned counseling, there'd be some questions like, no, I pay for my own liability insurance. And again, I was paying, I think I was only paying like $30 annually for a liability insurance of up to $3 million. So again, not bad, it's cheap, but you know, I also don't want that to, and then going, of course, you know, when you look at all the church's insurance, it's like, you know, if something were to happen, my insurance would get hit first. And then if anything was over 3 million in damages, then the church's liability insurance would kick in too. Um, and that's how it kind of works. So in that way, it's like, you know, in a way I'm protecting the church by having a liability insurance if I'm counseling people. And even when I get a lie me on these shirts, I have to put that I'm a non-licensed pastoral counseling because they do have that section. So they know I'm a pastoral counselor. So they know that, hey, this is a guy who is not licensed, who's doing counseling. So that's why my premium was six to eight dollars, where I think if you're a, a licensed counselor, it probably might have been twelve dollars for a three million, <laughs> which is very cheap. But so that was kind of the so that was kind of the um and all that was through the ACA, the American Counseling Association, when I got that. Um but yeah, and I mean and I think I mean I think the reason why is because even though I know myself and I'm not going to take advantage of someone who's coming in, but there's a lot of pastors who maybe took a counseling course in their seminary thing or maybe they took a class on how to do pastoral counseling and just by taking a semester they think that they're counselors trained counselors that can do great work and that's not true the other the other issue with um pastors being counselors is it also depends on the organization or the seminary that you're part of how they view counseling uh years ago liberty university had an ad that had the Bible, it was the Bible was on a table and then the DSM was on top of it. I believe it is, or it was switched. But the kind of the uh, kind of the uh, message it was portraying is that counseling is about the word of God first, that's the foundation, and the DSM is second. 
where Ashland, what I've learned at Ashland was the Bible and the DSM are, are together. Like they are partners in counseling. It's not, this is one, this is the supplement. They're both equally important when you are counseling someone, both the scriptures and the DSM. And we have to treat both of them with respect. Not one's better than the other. They're both equally important. So just that mentality of how a organization, whether that would be the SOT at Anderson University or Liberty University or Ashland or or whatever seminary, how they approach their counseling is also going to shape uh, how pastors do counseling within their offices with either parishioners or with outside people. Yeah, I mean, I would tell you firsthand that in my seminary experience that I I took pastoral care, pastoral counseling, ethics one and two, um, but I don't, like you said, Scott, like I, you know, I can offer advice and, and, and offer names of folks that I know that do counseling professionally, but I'm not, I don't think that I would put myself in the the place and feel good about it counseling somebody yeah yeah and 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 the other thing about counseling is counseling is solely relationship based and one of the first things when i took counseling ethics one of the very first things and i remember it was a uh, dr weatherby every class session i would go in and take that class every thursday the first thing he would say as he's teaching ethics do not sleep with your client <laughs> now, as funny as that is, we we would go through ethics and we talk about things. But one of the things he said is, you know, and he actually had a speaker come in, at least not not during my class, but, you know, years prior, he had a speaker coming who was a student of this particular cohort. And the student shared their story about how they're in this program. And they remember hearing Dr. Weatherby always say, don't sleep with your client, don't sleep with your client, and always figured, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm I'm happily married. It's not going to happen to me. And then it did. And they lost their licensing credentials. And they're not allowed to do counseling anymore. And it tore their family apart. And you know, the thing is, is they say that, you know, since it's so highly relational that even when you are dealing with other stressors, whether they're outside of the counseling room or dealing with all the stressors of all the people who are coming to you with all their problems, it's very, and they call it transference and counter-transference, where easily you can start to identify with somebody, a, a client, and they can share their story or share the things that go, man, that just feels like where I'm at right now. I can relate to exactly. And that may be good fuel to kind of really help your client get through some stuff. Cause like, Hey, I'm in that same season of life with you. We can work together. We can get through this and, and do this and be a very beneficial and it can work. But at the same time, you start to see those things that you may be struggling with or the same light season of life that you're in can be the glue that bonds you to kind of take your client counseling relationship to a new level of unhealthiness in relationships. Even in the um, even in the um, ACA, they say that you are not allowed to even date a client, period. So even if you were no longer seeing that client anymore, you were not allowed to date them. Now they kind of changed the rules where you can start dating a client, but it has to be 15 years after you terminated services. Interesting. So, so like, I mean, so if I'm counseling a woman and let's say I'm single and I'm counseling a woman and let's say we have an attraction to each other, I'm not allowed to even go on a date or contact her or anything else for 15 years before. And if 15 years, if I still am attracted to this woman, she's still attracted to me, then I can date her. And I think the main reason why that is, is because, because of the relationship between the counselor and the client is so ingrained, it's so relational driven. They want to make sure that, that the person that you apparently are 
are in love with apparently in the counseling room that that is just not because of the counseling culture that it's actually something outside so it's almost like we're going to get ourselves so far removed from the counseling thing that even afterwards we're still like yeah i still like you you still like me cool we can date now it's been 15 years since we've terminated services um so that's something that i think is very interesting but the same thing is when you add that to the church churches are very relational driven so if you are a pastor and a parishioner and a counselor and a client your relationship takes on many many different layers and it can be very easy to fall into those traps where now this relationship is starting to become a love affair and that, you know, and then you might make comments like like the example that our listener gave, like, oh, the pastor said, hey, if I wasn't married, I'd date you. Like that's that's messed up. Like, like that's I mean, I wouldn't couldn't even imagine a pastor saying that to somebody. And I could have imagined myself as a counselor saying that to someone. Like that is egregious. That is egregious. Like if any, if and if I said that, I wouldn't go say, "Oh, don't tell anybody." If I said that, I would want someone to report me that I made a comment like that, because that shows that there is something really wrong, or or if it's not only wrong, but apparently I have got I have crossed the boundary of what is acceptable by not only a pastor but also as a counselor as well in that setting. I mean, there's just so many different ways that you could approach it, right? And um, I remember when I was in seminary, I did, um, like I said, some ethics courses, pastoral care and counseling. Um, but as a part of my capstone in seminary, I had to write kind of like a a manual, if you will of like things not to do. And I think you, you described it a little bit earlier, but like the whole idea of making sure that your door is cracked, making sure there's windows, making sure that like your spouse knows where you are and when you're going to come home, like make, making sure that there's somebody else in the building and you're not alone making sure. And, and I know that's not always possible with smaller churches, but like in your case, Scott, you said you texted Laura and you were like, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm at. This is who I'm meeting with. This is the time I'm meeting. This is the time I'm going to be home. These are all the situations where you're covering yourself. Yeah. And I, I put those things together so that like, um, I had to, I create, like I said, I created the manual that, you know, um, would basically just cover my rear end if I were ever in that situation. Yeah. Um, well, I even, I mean, the one thing I would kind of, argue against is i know you said like well you know not small churches can do that well small churches can no no, no i'm just if, saying i mean well i mean i'm saying that even if you weren't married you know i had the luxury i had i was already married i could tell laura where i was but if i wasn't married i could tell my head elder i could tell somebody who i trust in the church saying hey i'm counseling this person i'm i'm counseling a woman and i don't even have to say names like i am counseling a woman from four to five my session starts at four at five. I'm going to call you again to let you know when my session is done and I'm on my way home. I was accountability. Yeah, no, no, no. I was, I know I'm not disagreeing with that, Scott. No, I, I, what I was saying that like smaller churches don't always have the luxury of having somebody else in the building. Oh, okay. When, I misunderstood. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like I, I'm just saying because you mentioned earlier, like you you did counseling in a smaller church, and it's like you don't always have the luxury of having somebody else around when you're counseling somebody. Like I I know that when I worked in a larger church, that when pastor was counseling somebody, like there's always other staff around. There's always somebody in the building. So um, if something were to go down, somebody's going to be there. So that's that's all I meant by that. Yeah. And and I think, you know, and, and again, like I'll I'll go back to what our um our listeners said that, you know, they wish that there are more organizations like church like, you know, your your national church organizations that they would, you know, be partnered with um someone like uh Grace, uh which is um a godly response to abuse in the abuse in the church environment. And I mean, I looked at their annual report from last year, 
And it's interesting because in the last year, only 150 churches actually used them to kind of assess their culture to see hmm. if they had stuff that was, um, you know, that their their environment or their churches were safe places that, you know, very that a abuse wouldn't happen here. And um, B, if it did, they have a system on how to report abuse. So it was very, very good. Um and I mean, that's the thing that I think is kind of um, good in some ways, because, you know, when something like this happens and if you're a church where you maybe you notice that, hey, we had this incident happen, you know, there's or you're not alone. And even if your national office may not have something out there, there's a lot of independent places. And I would even recommend and my my recommendation is this is even if you're part of a big national denomination like a Baptist or a Methodist, if something happened where there is abuse or someone or a pastor was counseling somebody and they kind of took that relationship a little bit outside of the healthy boundaries that it needs to be, I'd say, you know, I know the UMC probably has a group of people or has an organization within the UMC that can go and do assessments of this sort of thing. But my response, my my personal opinion is I would always get like an independent company to come in and assess, mainly because, especially with the SBC, we have seen how so many times people have sent stuff to the SBC and it was either swept under the rug or the response is, okay, we're going to move this pastor out of this church because obviously, clearly they're calling us in damage, but then they put them in a different church. So they kind of blanket over the situation, but they don't fix the problem that you have a predator in the pulpit who's not, and you're just moving a predator to a different to a different culture so that they could do the same thing again. Yeah. So, you know, so again, and again, if you're interested, that uh, website that our listeners sent us was uh, netgrace.org, N-E-T-G-R-A-C-E dot org. You can check it out. They have a wonderful bunch of services. And again, if you're a pastor, and let's say if you're a pastor and you are a uh, counselor as well, you know, I would highly, I would highly consider maybe not doing counseling. Or maybe if you do do an assessment and then always send them off to somebody else. Because I feel like when you are a pastor, you're built, you're dealing with too many relationships and not just like loving relationships because the church, you can have a lot of loving relationships, but you can also have a lot of strained relationships and sometimes just dealing with people. And maybe if you're dealing with difficult people and it just kind of lowers your guard and you feel strained. And then you have that one session with that one client where you really get along with, and it kind of gives you like that serotonin boost of excitement and you are all energetic again. And you're excited because you had a good session uh, with this client, you know, that's another perfect breeding ground for misconduct to happen. Because if you feel drained and then you go and you talk to someone who excites you, you're going to start having feelings and start having different, um, a different connection, a different view of that person than just the parishioner. You're going to see them a little bit more and it can cause damage. So, um, so just be aware of that. And, um, you know, and that's just my opinion, you know, as someone who has done counseling in the past as a pastor, I'm very much on the side of just referring people. I'm fine with meeting them. I'm fine with talking with them. I'm fine with praying with them. I'm fine with meeting them to talk about spiritual things. But when we start talking about psychological stuff, I'm going to, I'm going to refer you just because I feel like that's going to, it's not that I don't love you. But I, I love you too much that I want to refer you to someone who is very skilled and someone who's up to date with all the different knowledge of the psycho, psychological world that they can do the best thing to make you whole that I would not be able to do. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Anything else you want to add, Micah? No. <laughs> I think we covered it. <laughs> I think we covered it too. Um, and again, thank you so much to our listener who sent that um, to us. Um, very great topic. And I hopefully um, this has helped you with your kind of healing process. 
just knowing that there are other people who are on your side and and um and other people who may be going through the same thing and if you're somebody who you know you went through an experience where you're seeking counseling at a church and uh things got awkward or things went really bad you know feel free to message us we can definitely uh you know share your story anonymously on our website just to know um and especially you know check out websites like netgrace.org these independent um groups that can go into your churches to assess them to say hey this is a very good church that we we believe that nothing's ever a hundred percent sure but we believe that there is a high rate of no abuse being able to happen or if abuse does happen that this culture will respond in the appropriate ways versus saying oh, okay you need to make some changes you need to add some doors with windows you need to make sure that there's stuff here that needs to happen or this church is not suitable to do counseling or the pastor is not suitable to do counseling. So don't offer it period. You know, so friends, thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and we'll be back on next week with another episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Scott Simmons podcast. The Scott Simmons podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. We thank listeners like Patty and Scott, whose support goes to this podcast, continual growth and maintenance. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so in a number of ways. First, feel free to give us a five-star rating if you enjoyed this episode and share it with your friends. If you'd like to financially support the Scott Seven Podcast, you can go to the website ko-fi.com slash the Scott Seven Podcast. That website again is ko-fi.com slash the Scott Seven Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.